Now it's on. I must have hit it with the Psalter. Thank you, Nick. Mike is back on. Okay, here we go. So last time together, we, we spoke about the last two verses of chapter 10. We had maybe two or three, I don't remember, sermons on our lips. First of all, we, we opened it up by giving us a proper theory of language. Uh, language theory is, is an important uh, foundation for how you view language generally, right? And we want a biblical theory of language, not the peeps and grunts of, of manipulation of our animal ancestors, as the evolutionists will tell us. That makes speech a tool of manipulation in every age. God said speech is not to be used for that. In the eternal councils, there were promises uttered, covenants made. And then God spoke the universe into existence, and by his personal and written word has communicated himself to us in truth and uprightness. Thus the model, the true theory of language. And then we moved on from that, and we talked about the last time, the purpose that God gave us our lips. And what was that purpose? Oh yeah, that's right. To offer him praise. To give up the offerings of our lips, the calves of our lips. And so that's what we saw over these last few weeks. Of course, we took a break last week and we talked about um, church membership and eldership. We want to move on now to our study in chapter 11 and we hear of false balances. And before we go on to the topic of false balances um, and the Eighth Commandment, I wanted to pause and remember the breadth of the word of the Lord. And I suppose if you have someone to blame besides me, although you can blame me, for, for this portion of the study, you'd want to talk to Charles Bridges as well. Because isn't that what he said in the beginning of his quotation? What a marvel, he says, the word of God is. That King Solomon, the prophet, would descend to talking to just weights and measures and balances and so on. Why is that? Why is it that, you know, in our age, aren't we, aren't we uh, pounded into this square peg of, of private religion? You know, have your Bible. Go ahead, Christian. Have your Bible. But have it for yourself. Don't bring it out into the public square. It doesn't belong here. That's what they'll tell us. You can have your private religion, but don't bring your Bible out here as if it's going to polish the brass on this ship. And many Christians have had that same attitude toward the ship, haven't they? As we said earlier today. But it's not the attitude of the scripture itself. The Bible presents itself as that which touches every area of every human life. Everything that is to be done by a human being in this world is to be touched, informed, and directed by the word of God. Immediately the, the alarm bells begin going off and we, we hear about the Bible as a, as a passe book, certainly not capable of running with the, with the big dogs of our modern culture and so on. And there's just no way you can expect about your Pastor, you're overblowing what the Bible was ever intended to do. It was intended to be a private devotional book for Christians. And if you all want to get together and talk about it from time to time and make yourselves feel good, that's fine. But that's not how the Bible presents itself. The doctrines of the Bible are not in any way presented like that. The practices of the Bible are not in any way presented like that. 
Let's remember, let's review our first step in monotheism. What is the advantage of monotheism? And I'm just talking bare philosophy here. The first step in monotheism is because there is one God and creator, there is one rule for all mankind. All mankind. This is what monotheism is. If there are five gods or 24 gods or 37 gods or, an, or a myriad of gods, then there's a myriad of standards. But there is not a myriad of standards. There's one standard. There is what we call the moral law. And the moral law, as we say in our larger catechism, is of use to all men. It is used specially to the unregenerate and specially to the regenerate. All three of those are true. Because there's only one God. And God has created us for himself. Why did the Lord create all things? What do we learn in Revelation chapter 4? Thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You know, Part of the offense of the cross is, brother, sister, you're not good enough. But the other part of the offense of the cross is your life is not your own. You're created for the pleasure of another. No, 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 no. You don't get that. No, no. I'm created for my own pleasure. I want to grab the gusto, right? I want to get everything I can for me. I want to make my life, you know, it's, it's personal peace and prosperity and pleasure. That's what I'm after in this world. That's what every man's after. Don't you get that, Pastor? No, I don't get it. Because the Bible teaches us that we're created for the pleasure of another. Children, get that through your head early. It took me a long time. I pray that you'll get that through your head a lot, lot earlier than I did. You're created for the pleasure of another. For God. You're created for God's pleasure. And how do we please God? How do we do that? Well, in our fallen estate, we must first come to Christ to be pleasing to God. And then we please Him as His dear children in obeying Him in Christ. That's how we please Him. So, a part of pleasing Him is learning how to obey Him. And a part of that obedience is not merely private It is also public. So our opening thesis statement then with regard to the Bible is something that is startling if you think about it. In 2 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what we're going to do in our reading is we're we're going to do what Pastor Rodell often mentions and that is we're going to violate the chapter break. And we're going to go from 2 Timothy 3 to 2 Timothy 4 for a continuity of the thought. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy, the evangelist and pastor. Verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee, therefore, before God, And the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing 
Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction. Afflictions do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We heard David's parting shot earlier today, didn't we? This is in the same uh, vein Paul's parting shot to Timothy. I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have finished my course, Paul says. So Timothy, what do you need to know? Number one, Timothy, you need to know the depth and breadth of the scripture. That's the first thing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now there's a little bit of a misnomer there. When we say inspiration, literally the scripture is expiration. It's theopnustia, God breathed it out, not took it in. When we say that the scriptures are inspired, what we mean is that the word of God is in them. This is the word of God. Okay, But biblically the terminology is God breathed them out just like they were his very words. These are the words of God that are here. And so, Timothy, you need to know that. Notice that in that, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable. Why? What's it profitable for? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. You hear that? It's profitable for doctrine. That is the teaching of what is. You 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 want to talk about the science of being, metaphysics. The Bible teaches you a proper metaphysics. You don't need to go to Kant for that. The Bible teaches you that. The Bible will teach you about being. The things that are true. The things that are real. Secondly, notice it says that it's profitable for teaching, doctrine, also for reproof. The Greek word there points to when something is out of the way to correct it. Um, pedagogical correction, although the word pedagogy is held off until later, and I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. Okay, so for reproof, that is correction when out of the way, then also for correction, and literally this word speaks to restoration or improvement. So not just being uh, brought back from being out of the way, but set in the right order, set in the right way, both sides of that, right? If something is broken, Not only do you want to put it back together, but you want to prepare it for use and get it ready to be pointed in the right direction so you can use it again. That's what's being spoken of there. And then the the last word for instruction in righteousness, the Greek word for instruction there, is the same word we get pedagogy from. Paideia. 
And paideia is used in, well, it has a wide semantic range in Scripture. It speaks of regular instruction, but it also speaks of correction. It speaks of rebuke. It even speaks of chastisement. And you know what I mean when I put my hand like this. Chastisement, in that sense. That the Bible is good for all of that. It's good for doctrine, the instruction in things, the, the way they are. It's good for moral instruction, such that you correct bad doctrine and bad practice. It's also uh, uh, an instrument that fits you for proper operation. And then third... The Bible is competent to provide for you that kind of pedagogy and training and discipline that you need as well. Now comes the startling statement. If that wasn't startling enough, now here's the startling statement. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto almost all, some, many good works. That's not what it says. It says every good work. That the man of God may be furnished unto every good work. If there is a work, listen to me carefully. I'm very serious on this point. If there is a work that can be called good before God, it will be informed by the scripture. First and foremost, you will be able either to find it there explicitly or by way of some implication. If calculus is a good work, then you will find something in Scripture to tell you that for what you're about to undertake, it is good for you. It will also tell you how to do it morally before God. doesn't matter what the discipline is. This doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture is only given lip service in the popular church today. And they don't, we don't, as the visible church, run back home to the Bible to inform what we're doing in everything like we ought to. We just read a passage in which Solomon the king, as the prophet, condescended to a civil magistrate item and says, make sure you have just balances. God commands outside his church into the civil estate and tells them, that they need to do something there for uprightness. Why? Because he's God and there's no standard besides his. He can reach into civil magistracy and command it because they are, Romans 13, God's ministers for good. And when they go outside of the way, then they will be brought to heel with the correction and reproof and paideia of the Bible as well. We don't live in that age Beloved, we live in an age where civil magistrates believe that they can do no wrong or that the only wrong that they can do would be to embarrass themselves somehow. You know, something to keep them from getting reelected. Anything to get them reelected is obviously good, according to them. But the Bible condescends to speak to civil magistrates and says to them, You kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way. I want you to marvel with me today at the breadth of the scripture. Every good work, beloved. Every good work, Paul says. I don't believe this is one of those, those uh, sections of the scripture or passages of the Bible where all is used in, a, in an exaggerative or hyperbolic kind of way. 
for effect. There are too many other passages of the Bible that teach us contrary to that. This is not a simple exaggeration. Do you want to know how to manage your finances? God will tell you. Do you want to know how to raise your children? God will tell you. Do you want to know how to be the best worker, whatever that skill is? God will tell you. Oh, he's not going to give you in his word the fine points of how to iron a shirt. But he will tell you how to apply those skills for his glory. And everything that we do, beloved, is sweetened by our faith in Christ and the information that we receive from him that we bring to bear on every task that we do no matter what. The church must and we must in our own thoughts stop separating the sacred and the secular. If the plowing of the wicked is sin, then the plowing of the righteous is righteous. Every good work is informed by the Bible. The sad part is that we don't come to the scriptures to hear it. Now, we violated the chapter break, didn't we? And why? What is Timothy to do then? If, he, if this is what the word of God is, well, then it's very clear. Uh, what's not clear is why the chapter break is there. That's what's not clear. Because what's happening here is we just run straight into it. Now, Timothy, here's your use. I charge you, Paul said solemnly charge you that you preach the word and notice the depth of this charge the solemnity of it i charge thee therefore before god and the lord jesus christ who shall judge the quick the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom that's a charge isn't it i charge you by the judgment that you will endure when christ returns timothy preach the word Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. That is, be ready at all times to preach the word. Study it, understand it, know it, so that if you show up one morning to a, and you're on vacation and you visit a church and the pastor fell sick that day, they can look at you like they did at the Apostle Paul. If you have any word of exhortation, brother, say on. Then you can stand in the pulpit and preach an edifying sermon to the people of God there. Be instant, in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not. Now notice what he says. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and what? Doctrine. Notice that it is, a, it is almost the mirror image, the, the chiasm of what we said back in verse 16. You take those same things and you bring them to bear in your preaching. You know why? Here's why. Because the people of God that you serve, they have a tendency, like we all do, to turn our ears away from the truth and to turn to fables. You want to know what fables are, beloved, in this context? What are fables? Fables are when someone tells you, the Bible doesn't apply to that. You don't need to worry about it. There's nothing the Bible has to say about how you work in this world. No, you don't need to worry about that. The Bible doesn't inform your housework, ladies. Don't worry about that. Gentlemen, the Bible doesn't inform your callings. No, you just need to please your boss. That's all you need to worry about. You don't need to worry about anything else. 
But we know differently, don't we? We know what the scriptures teach us about our labors, about our works, even in some of what we would call the most mundane efforts in this world, that they are informed by the word of God. They are upheld and buttressed by the word of God. In fact, we're told how to do them and with what kind of heart to do them. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. And we know who it is ultimately that we do them for. Now we said this before, we want to say it again. That we have immediate client there, we need to please our boss. But if pleasing our boss runs contrary to our pleasing who stands behind our boss, then we must not please our boss. We must please our ultimate boss. So this is, this is a fascinating passage, I think. It is, uh, you know, uh, one thing that one of the popular preachers of today said it, when, when he said, preach the word here, he said, this is, the, this is one of the greatest commandments in the New Testament for expository preaching. Well, it may be. But I think that's to do the passage short shrift. What we see in this passage is the sufficiency of Scripture. And because it's sufficient for every area of life to inform something or other in everything that we do, then it has to be brought to bear on everything that we do. Why is it? It is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. And we we won't take the time to read 2 Peter uh, 1, 18 through 21. But let's let's stop for a moment. I, I think we just sang about this, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. The heavens by the word of God did their beginning take, and by the breathing of his mouth, he all their hosts did make. Uh, When we were singing that, I was thinking about the first sermon and how we talked about the Spirit being present at creation and with the other members of the Trinity, the creator of the world. Right? And so what Peter would say there is that is that these men were born along by the Spirit of God, that, the, that it is this breathing out of God, this inspiration, or if you will, expiration of God, by which we have the Bible. This is not just the word of men. This is, as Robert Raymond will say, a word from another world. Robert Raymond is very interesting in, in that opening section of his systematic theology where he will tackle the doctrine of scripture he'll say you know in our government we spend billions and billions of dollars every year to find a word from another world right the SETI the SETI program the search for extraterrestrial intelligence so far has been an utter failure we might say the search for terrestrial intelligence has been the same (laughs) We have an extraterrestrial intelligence, don't we, that has revealed himself to us in his word, that has given us the word from another world, that is not of human origin. It is divine. It is forever settled in heaven. And so it ought to inform us then in everything. And notice in this there is no division between the sacred and the secular. Let's remind ourselves of that in Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 22. Servants, chapter 3, verse 22. Servants, 
Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. In our mundane callings, we serve Christ? Yes. Yes. Children, especially you young men, one day you will come to a point in your life where you need to choose what you're going to do to provide for yourself as an adult and your family. Um, Some would say to you, make sure that you find a trade that pays well. Your pastor's not going to tell you that. I don't, uh, I mean, I do care, but I don't, I'm not so very concerned about how much you make as an adult. What I'm more concerned with is, is the trade that you have chosen, the calling that you have chosen, the work that you do, is it something that you can do honestly to the Lord? And if you can, then do it with your might. Be excellent. And lead your co-workers around you to the Lord in your labor. Work hard. Work diligently. Work uprightly. Refuse graft and cheating and theft. Refuse all of those things and be a witness and adorn your profession of the gospel in your calling no matter what it is. And whether you make a lot or a little, whether you abound or are abased in this life, you are building up treasure in heaven that will never be taken from you. But have the word of God inform your labor and don't separate your labor from Christ. Paul says you serve him. And so... Serve him. Ladies, same is true of your labors in your homes. You serve him. Same uh, as you take the lion's share of the schooling of your children. You serve him. And we don't want to do any of these things apart from him, but right next to him, right up against him, leaning and resting upon him and having his word inform everything that we do. Because every good work that we do, according to the Apostle Paul, is informed by the word of God. Every good word. It used to be that we understood this. Uh, many of the, uh, of the uh, groundbreaking discoveries of the past were done by those men and women who believed in Christ and endeavored through their labors to advance our race. Do you hear that going on anymore? I don't. I hear things, you know, the, the quote and advancements that are coming are not really advancements at all. You know why? Because we have ceased looking to the word of God in those things. We have ceased bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We've ceased bringing our labors to the feet of Christ. We've ceased bringing our efforts to the feet of Christ. And certainly we've ceased bringing our hearts to the feet of Christ as we labor in all of those things. And so now some of the, quote, advancements, I don't know about you, but I'm downright afraid of them. Because they're not informed by Scripture, they're not guided by Scripture, and the people that bring them up have no ethical uh, foundation at all. They have reasoned from the is to the ought. I can, so I must. And beloved, it's simply dangerous. 
And when the music stops and it all comes crashing down, well, we believe that the Lord will build something better out of it. But if we don't subdue our callings to Christ, remember in our concept of no neutrality, it's going to be subdued to someone, something, some worldly philosophy or worse, satanic design. Turn with me now in your, in, in, in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have laid wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. Well, it's difficult to know, dogmatically speaking, who wrote Psalm 119. Most believing students of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, would say that David wrote it. And I would tend to agree with that. I, I think that's my opinion as well. But, uh, but again, we'll not be dogmatic on it. But let us muse for a moment together uh, with Matthew Henry. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't read the, the quotation, but, but let me just set this out there before you. These are Dr. Henry's musings, and I think that they're very, very helpful. David, at, at the end of this uh, octet, writes, I have seen an, an end of all perfection. And I think the word perfection there ought to be couched in quotations. I have seen an end of all, quote, perfection. I saw the swiftest fall. Asahel. I saw one of the most noble men I'd ever known, Abner, slain. I saw one of the most beautiful men I'd ever known, my own son, Absalom, killed. I saw perfection after perfection after perfection come to an end. But thy commandment is exceeding broad. I think Dr. Henry is right. I think that's how we ought to understand this passage. That we can look to the world all we want. We can look to the, to the unbelievers of our day, the movers and shakers of our day, and we can say, they will save us. Or we can say, the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Sadly, much of the world is following after this man and that man because he's rich, because he's funny, because she's this or that, when we have the exceeding broad commandments of God right before us. 
and we don't consult them. We think of them as passe. Even in the church, we set them aside for the doctrines and commandments of men. We've let psychology replace biblical counseling, and I mean stout biblical counseling, counseling from the scriptures with the wisdom of the ages. We've let all of those things go by. We've said God didn't create the world, but it evolved, and God guided it. We've said that Jesus died, you know, for everybody. He just couldn't quite get everybody saved. We've said all kinds of things contrary to the word of God. We've let in the boar into the vineyard. The boar of the wood has come in, and he wastes it as he pleases. And beloved, this is because we have not been vigilant at the gates. We cannot endure this as churches. When the doctrines and commandments of men come in like a flood, they will always replace the stout and strong and profitable doctrine of God. We cannot let such things happen on our watch. So, notice in this octet, first of all, the Lord, David tells us, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It is an eternal word. The things spoken in Scripture, beloved, they will be true eons into eternity. Do you know anything else like that? You don't, do you? What did the world look like in the days before the fall? Honestly, I have no idea. I don't know what a world looks like in which there is no death. I have no idea what that world looked like. What will the world look like after Christ returns? I can't tell you. There are so many things that may and will change. But this, it won't. It's constant. It will be there. We will marvel at the eternal word of God because it is forever settled in the heavens. That's what David says here in verse 89. It's forever. Notice, if the Lord by his natural governance over the universe is good, much more the thoughts and words and deeds of men if they are governed by God's word. And so the word of God is good, and when we are guided by it, our thoughts, words, and deeds are good. The word of God is his word, eternal, and men would do well to adhere to it and receive it. The precepts of God, David says, give life. They are a stay and a comfort in persecution and affliction. And finally, though all things temporal purport a certain perfection, the word of God is the only thing that has that kind of truth and breadth to it. Oh, I want to extol the word of God to you today, beloved. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8. You can almost hear, I say almost, because you know, we know that the Lord does not, quote, become frustrated. But there is indeed what sounds like a measure of frustration here. And I think it's well placed. It is God condescending. So we'll start in verse 9. 
Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should walk, not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, for a gin, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law upon, uh, among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwell in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass when they shall be hungry. They shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish. And they shall be driven to darkness. This passage is a remarkable passage in Israel. It is during the apostasy of the days of Ahaz. Chapters 7, 8, and 9. In the passage just before, and in chapter 7, remember that Ahaz is, is told that there's going to be this child that comes. And, and uh, he will be born of a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and be with child. And Ahaz, for his part, he's not having any of it. He doesn't think that, that there's going to be any deliverance. The, you know, the, the Assyrians, the Assyrians, they're amassing, they're amassing. They're going, to, they're going to destroy us. They're going to invade us. Forget it, Isaiah. You don't know what you're talking about. And Isaiah will, in this three-chapter section, gradually reveal Messiah. And finally, we'll come to chapter 9 where we have that wonderful statement, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end upon the throne of his father David to establish it. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts shall establish this. This is how it culminates. But here along the way, they're saying, we're in danger, we're in danger. And the prophet backs up from that and he says, don't you realize Verse 8, the, the verse that we read, uh, or that we didn't read just before 9. This is Emmanuel's land. This is Emmanuel's land. It's not going to be taken from you forever. You will not lose your inheritance. And then it goes on from verse 9 down through the end of the passage. And what we have here is we have the Israel within Israel. The bulk of the people 
They're afraid. They're put to fright. They're turning to everything they can turn to except God. And they're saying to themselves, you know what this is? This is a confederacy. Assyria has joined with other nations. We don't stand a chance. A confederacy. A confederacy. And the answer of the prophet is what? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Let him be your dread. Let him be your fear. But they refuse. And by the way, this is that famous passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Right? Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Be ready to give an answer to every man. Peter's referring back here to Isaiah chapter 8. <coughs> and so now, what they're saying, these unbelievers within the nation... They're saying, oh, we're, we're going to be overrun. We're going to be overrun. And Isaiah encourages them. No, no, no. Sanctify Jehovah, the Lord, the covenant God in your hearts. Let him be your dread and let him be your fear. And you'll pass over beset and hungry, but the Lord will save you. You will be protected by him. And the rest of the people, they say, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. We, we, we want something more than that. Let's turn to the, winter, to, to the wizards that peep and mutter. Let's turn to something other than God. Let's figure out a strategy that God has somehow left out of his word. Let's confess together that the scripture is not sufficient. And what is the answer of the Lord to that? Why why do you turn to wizards that people mutter? Should not a people turn to their God? To the law. And to the testimony, and this is a really interesting thing because just back in verse 16, he said, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. And it's interesting that Isaiah would use that word disciple. He's talking to the truly faithful within the nation. Bind up that testimony and law among my disciples. And then he'll tell everyone to the law and to the testimony. Because if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. There's no light in them. Oh, beloved, this is a great passage. It tells us, especially as the people of God, the disciples, it tells us that there's really no other truth that will last the times. There's really no other paradigm of thought beyond the scriptures that is settled in heaven forever. The scripture ought then to inform everything that we do. It ought to be the foundation. It ought to be our constant companion. We ought to keep it by our side as a manual of living. And so much more than a manual of living. As those whose hearts are purified by faith. As a hearty and great letter. Communication from our great God to teach us how to live and what to believe. Every one of us, myself included, we have heard from others. Sadly, many times, we have swapped out this good word of our God for the voice of others. This disloyalty to our God, this must cease among us. We must confess and forsake We must repudiate and turn away from every false way. We must turn back to the word of God to inform everything that we do. Is there a natural light? Of course there is. Yes, yes there is. 
But the natural light, remember what Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount. The light of the body, the lamp of the body is the eye. But what happens if your light becomes darkness? What happens if in your original corrupted estate, even that natural light that you have is turned into darkness and obscurity? It is in the scriptures that we find the clearing away of those clouds and darkness. How ought one to do finance and real estate and construction? Well, there are tricks of the trade that belong to the training of that trade, but the foundation of them all is found in the Word of God. And without that Word, those inventions of men will really not invent. They will simply destroy. Like I said a few moments ago, the modern inventions which are not fenced in by folks, inventors that are professing belief in the true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, they're not comforting inventions, are they? We can have no confidence in those witty inventions of men that are invented perhaps to aggrandize and oppress. Well, with that then, we're out of time. Let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 11. And let us close where we began by remembering that God has condescended in this chapter to speak to weights and measures. What is a foot? What is a pound? What is an inch? What is uh, an acre? Well, all of these things, if they are held in righteousness, if they are upheld by proper civil authority in such a way to prevent theft, they are a delight to the Lord. That's what it says. A delight. If they, how, if they, however, are perverted, then they are an abomination. Has God not taught us in his word, when we consider the eighth commandment, that things like this that take place in private commerce between men outside the church are yet governed by him? Because the commandment is exceeding broad. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee with a confession upon our lips that we have had other informers, other sources, that we have put too much stock at times in vanities, in the philosophy of the world. We have let the world dictate to us what is desirable. And we, have desire, and we have desired what the world says we should desire. We have let the world dictate to us what is valuable. And we have valued what the world says we should value. We have done many such things, Lord. And we confess that this is a shame to us. And we desire that thou shouldst stop our ears to those other voices and help us in all our valuations, in all of our estimations, 
in all that we think important to gain truth from thy word and to apply that to our thoughts, our desires, our wills, to all the powers of the soul that we might be informed by thy word in such a way that we would no longer desire, that we would be able with discerning hearts to turn away from what the world tells us that we should desire, which really will harm us in the long run, and that we might turn unto thee and to hear from thee what we ought to desire, and that thou wouldst bring up our desires and cause our hearts to rise up to meet thy word in such a way that we may be furnished, truly furnished, unto every good work. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.